And we will uh, turn to Leviticus chapter 19, verses 29 through 37. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out. And so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. And you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah and a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. Keep in mind, as we've been saying, Moses has been issuing to Israel. Of course, God working through Moses has been issuing to Israel a series of instructions related to how they should live as the holy people of God. Moses continues with that here in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 29 through 37, giving further instructions as to how they should order their lives as God's holy people. And the instruction of verse 29 concerns the call to parents to preserve the purity of their children. He says here, Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. One of the things, of course, we know as we read through the book of Leviticus, Deuteronomy, we come to portions like these that can be very sensitive as far as uh, mixed audience is concerned. So what we're going to do, I'm just going to speak what are the broad applications of this particular command. And in essence, it concerns the responsibility that parents have to see to the preservation of their children's purity. This command to ancient Israel is one that has tremendous application and relevance to our day. Because in our day, as we watch events, as we listen to the news, as we watch cultural trends, we're witnessing a fierce battle for the preservation of our children's purity, a battle against the culture, a battle against the corporate world, a battle against the powers that be and its education system, all of which forces are seeking to spoil our children, are seeking to sexualize our children in the name of so-called grooming the gross perversions that are being pushed in our schools, we know we hear of them constantly. It's frightening to say the least. And what is even more frightening is that steps are being taken to suppress, to make illegal expressions of moral outrage, protests of parents against such devious and atrocious manipulation of our children. And if that weren't bad enough, we have instances where parents actually side with the culture, getting involved, jumping on the bandwagon, cheering and aiding their children in the ways of, and I call it the alphabet, it's not original with me, the alphabet agenda. The situation that likely gave rise to this instruction, this command, here in Leviticus 19.29, was the possible case of a father being in huge debt, such that out of desperation... 
he would sell his daughter into prostitution. Of course, you know, in those days, the father had control of the daughter up to the point where she became married. Of course, thereafter, she would be responsible to her husband. But the husband many times would arrange for the marriage of his daughter. He was basically the one who had control of her. And there are instances, apparently, where the father faced with huge debt would be led to compromise by selling his daughter, as it were, over into this vice. Quite possible, they tempt the prostitutes, because that was a big thing in that day. And to do such a thing, according to verse 29, was to profane or defile her. Such an act would degrade her, such an act would desecrate her, not only would it violate her, but it would put her in a position where she would not be able to live a holy life, a holy and godly life. And what's more, according to verse 29, is that such practice would have a contaminating influence on others. God knows exactly what he's doing. And we know, for example, as we look in our society, as we look at certain parts of the country, even certain cities, where some of these vices are practiced, then, of course, you know, the widespread nature, it becomes contagious, it becomes a social epidemic, as it were. That's what God is saying here. Don't do that, because what's happened, not only are you desecrating her, but then it would have a contaminating influence on the rest of society. But there's a principle here for us, um, because the, the, the truth is that however challenging, however difficult our financial situation might be, the point is resorting to sinful, depraved activities to survive is a no-no. The Christian, in particular God's people, should be people of moral integrity. They should never compromise their faith, even if it means eating bread. They should not. And parents, the principle we have here, we are gleaning from this passage, is that parents have a responsibility to provide shelter for their children, provide food for their children, but they also have the responsibility of spiritual and moral nurture of their children. Money for personal survival should not override the conviction that God has called us to be holy as he is holy. So that's what we glean from this command. It's something that is to be taken seriously and parents have a responsibility in this regard to set the pace and to ensure that their children are on a right path morally. Now, when I was studying this passage, I asked myself the question, what is the point of the next verse? Because if, if you look at the next verse, the next verse seems to just spring up like that with no logical connection between those two verses. And I looked at various commentaries. I didn't find any comment as far as the link between those two verses. But if you notice, in the next verse, the instruction given is... You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary, I am the Lord. And it seems to me that a close reading of verses 29 and 30 leads to this idea that part of the way in which God's people are safeguarded, are, are protected from moral ills, is through 
the community, the, the, the community of God's people, the body of God's people. Here for us, we talk about church, we talk about the gathering of God's people. And what that does, beloved, is this. Whenever we are thrown in community, whenever we are observing ordinances, observing the Lord's day, gathering for worship, gathering with the body of God's people, then that has a way of holding us accountable, holding us morally and spiritually accountable. Here's the point. Lone rangers, lone ranger type Christians are oftentimes the kind of Christians who run into very serious trouble. And right after God issues this command, he says, you shall keep my Sabbaths and you shall reverence my sanctuary, suggesting there that part of the way in which we protect ourselves spiritually is through the body of God's people, the community of God's people. Now we have in verse 32 another respect in which holiness was to be evidenced by the people of Israel. And holiness, according to verse 32, was to be evidenced by respect for the elderly. Respect for the elderly. The word there to Israel was this, verse 32, you shall stand up before the gray-headed and honor the face of the old man and you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. And what we have in this bit of instruction is an amplification of the fifth commandment, which says, honor your father and your mother. So to honor father and mother, which commandment was cited earlier in verse 3 of this chapter, is extended to showing respect for the elderly in general. Those whom we would refer today as senior citizens, those who are advanced in years, the aged now, every culture has its particular ways, has particular ways of showing honor and respect to the elderly. And as suggested by the command in the words in verse 32, the words stand up, honor, fear, such respect, we discover, what is suggested from that verse is, is that we are to respect the elderly, we are to show honor, we are to show respect to the aged in our attitudes, in our speech, and in our actions. Here God says, the way you honor them, he was addressing ancient Israel, he says, you shall rise up, you shall stand up before your elders. This was a common way of expressing courtesy in biblical times, as we see in Genesis chapter 19, verse 1, when the angels visited Abraham, Abraham arose. We see that same idea in chapter 31, verse 35, Isaiah 49, and verse 7. Now you'll notice in verse 3, notice that as in verse 3, honoring the aged is integrally related to one's relationship with God. In other words, we cannot truly worship and honor God if we are failing in the area of honoring, of respecting the elderly. Look at verse Three, every one of you, going back to verse 3, every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbath. Notice what follows. I am the Lord your God. Now look at verse 32. You shall stand up before the gray-headed and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear the Lord your God. I am the Lord. And certainly the lesson there for us is this, that we honor the Lord, we show respect for the Lord, even as we show respect for the elderly, for the aged. Sadly, that is a practice that is being almost lost in our time. 
respect for the elderly. Ever so often we hear, for example, you'll hear in the news, particularly in New York City, youngsters will just approach an elderly person for no reason, punch them, or, you know, just leave them, knock them over. And what a stage we have reached in our society when the elderly are treated shabbily. And one of the indices, one of the marks of a society that is going down, that is deteriorating, is disrespect for the elderly. You want to see a city, a society that is becoming decadent, watch how people relate to the elderly. And those of us who are saved, we are called to show respect, to show honor for our elders. In verses 33 and 34, holiness must be evidenced by justice toward the immigrant. Verses 33, 34, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The essential thrust of these verses is that strangers are to be treated kindly and hospitably. This was a matter which lay close to the heart of God. Time and again, God would call Israel to this matter of giving consideration to the sojourners, those we would refer today as immigrants. Early in chapter 19, verse 10, Leviticus 19, verse 10, we saw how that as Israel, the people of Israel, harvested their fields if they were to be charitable to the sojourner. God's law specified He says, don't, when you're gleaning your grapes, don't go near the edges, but leave that for the sojourner. Of course, Ruth is a classic example of a foreigner sojourner who made use of that provision. From as far back as Exodus 22, verse 21, Israel was commanded not to wrong a sojourner nor oppress him. In fact, in Deuteronomy 10, verses 18 and 19, God, in declaring that he loves the sojourner, By giving him food and clothing, summons Israel to likewise love the sojourner. You'll see that also in Deuteronomy 26, verses 12 and 13. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 5 through 7, God promised Israel that they would settle in the land if, among other things, they would not oppress the stranger. Ezekiel 22, 7 and 29, God, through the prophet, later charged Israel... As follows, he says, father and mother are treated with contempt in you. The people were dishonoring the elderly. They were dishonoring their parents back then. And then he says this, the sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. God, throughout his word, speaks strongly to this matter of treating foreigners with love and with respect. And what was the rationale? What was the reason for the call to Israel to be kind to the stranger? Notice the C part of verse 34. Israel was to be kind to sojourners for at least two reasons. Number one, the memory of their own status in the land of Egypt. The memory of what they themselves went through while they were in the land of Egypt as strangers, because God says there, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So as they related to the strangers among them, they were to recall 
that as strangers, they too had their time of oppression as slaves in Egypt. And the memory of that was to lead them to sympathize with the stranger, with the resident alien, such that they would practice deeds of love and care and compassion toward them. This, among other things, means that they were to love the strangers as they loved themselves. Somebody puts it like this, the stranger was not to be tolerated but loved. Now here we have echo of verse 18 in which Israel was instructed, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So taken with verse 34, strangers, it means that strangers are synonymous with one's neighbors. You'll recall in Luke chapter 10, verses 36, 32 36, Jesus illustrated this principle in his parable of the Good Samaritan. At the end of the parable, Jesus asked, and who then was neighbor to this man? And the Jew, of course, you can sense the embarrassment on his part. He would not even utter the word Samaritan. He says, the one who showed kindness, I suppose. And this really touched a raw nerve, this parable, because, of course, the Jews in that day, they looked down on the Gentiles, non-Jews, as dogs. All in all, God's kindness toward the Israelites when there were strangers in the land was to inspire them to be kind towards strangers. They were not to oppress them. In short, what God had done for them, they were to pass on to others. But notice a second reason why they were called to show kindness to the stranger. They were to show kindness to the strangers in their midst because of the sovereignty of God over their lives. Note the last clause of verse 34. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. Once again, the idea here is that Israel is obliged to follow God's instruction, is obliged to follow God's rules because he, can we say this, he calls the shots. He is the sovereign Lord. Now, let me say here, how do we apply these commands to our time? These compassionate humanitarian laws God laid down for Israel, of course, do have applications for us in our time. And without doubt, the Christian of all people is obliged to show kind, caring regard for immigrants. Those our text refers to as strangers. The question is, how do we do so? Well, among the ways, first of all, we do so by not treating them as second class. By not acting prejudicial toward them, despising them, by not considering them intrinsically inferior, and so on. By positive acts of courtesy, respect. Having said that, one of the things that's worth noting and commenting on is the way many today will take passages like these and in a wholesale fashion, just simply, without regard to any other consideration, say, you know, we should be kind to the stranger and so on. And by the way, we should, at all costs, under all circumstances, we should be kind to the strangers, to the immigrants. The problem is, on the, when it comes, and I know this is a hot-button topic, and I'm, I'm speaking now as one who is a preacher of the Word of God, so what I'm saying, I trust, is going to be from the perspective of God's Word as a servant of the Word of God, and not be any, in any way politically partisan. But let me say this, that based on the word of God and the principles of God's word, every nation under God has the right to enact 
and enforce laws related to those who enter and those who are to be expelled from that country. That is a sovereign right that is invested in nations. And there are those today who will readily claim, you will hear it, the, the ter- terms being readily banded, that it's racist, it's hateful, it's bigoted, it's insensitive for a nation to place restriction on its borders. No thought is given to the possibility of wrongdoers, of those who are of ill intent infiltrating the country. No thought is given to the question as to where the box stops. And the question is, if the door is left open indefinitely and indiscriminately for all to enter, the question is, how sustainable is that? That's a good question to ask. And we have to think, of course, what are the economic costs, and even more so, what are the social costs? What is the implication for national security? What of those who are in the line waiting for their turn and yet are supplanted, as it were, by those who will not wait their turn? Those are valid questions to ask. And how do we answer all of this from our Christian perspective? How do we deal from it? We have to start with the Word of God. We have to have an understanding of what the Bible teaches concerning nations, concerning borders, concerning sovereignty, and without being political, without being partisan. Here's the point. Nations have the sovereign right to determine their boundaries, what takes place within their borders, and the law should not be broken. If we are aiders and abettors of breaking the law in the name of compassion and so on, then we have to ask the question, how do we square that with our faith in Christ? I know it's a very sensitive topic. We always want to do what is right with regard, particularly to those who are in great need, refugees, but we also need to realize the importance of upholding the law and not breaking the law. In verses 35 through 37, we see that there is to be honesty and fairness in business practices. This is another expression of what it means to be holy. God commanded his people, he instructed his people, verses 35 through 37, you shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall be have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules, and do them. I am the Lord. In a nutshell, what is God saying here? God is saying here that part of what it means to be holy, part of what it means to be representatives of his, as his people in this world, the Christian, God's people, are to be honest and fair in their business dealings. And notice again, God predicates that on the fact that he is the sovereign Lord. And he calls attention once again to what they were in Egypt. He says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and you shall observe all my studies. Why is he going back, referring them back to Egypt? Because Egypt symbolized what? Oppression. Egypt symbolized manipulation. It symbolized oppression. What God is saying here is that when we act unfairly, when we act dishonestly in our business practices, we are actually oppressing Others, We are actually manipulating others, and God will have none of that. We are to be fair 
He says, you shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length, or weight, or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, just ephah, a just hin. I am the Lord your God, brought you out of the land of Egypt, and you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules, and do them, I am the Lord. This is a particular word. I would say it goes across the board, but particularly for those who are in business. Um, what a challenge we have in our day as time gets harder and harder and harder. The temptation to cut straight and to do right. And the principle from the word of God is this, that at all costs, honesty must be our policy. And the truth is this, that if we put God first, even when others are doing wrong, even when others are being dishonest, even when others are engaging in unfair business practices, if we do what is right, if we put God first, God has promised to bless our efforts. Our profit margins might not be as wide as the profit margins of others who are cutting corners and scheming. But here's the point. God will see us through and God will weather us through those times of difficulty in business. Honesty at all costs. So this chapter that we have summary is larger concerned as we have seen throughout these weeks with the subject of holiness of life predicated at God's self-declared holiness. You shall be holy even as I am holy. And that holiness is to be manifested in interpersonal relationships. It is to be manifested in all areas of our lives, sexual areas of our lives, social areas of our lives. In every respect, God's people are to be holy as God is holy.